God, are you going to sing a song? Mm-hmm. No way, Rob. Yep. This is a song that um, it'll test your Canadian knowledge. A song that will test my Canadian knowledge? Yep. I didn't realize you were going to go this I know. way. Mm-hmm. This is this is like a whole okay. I will tell you I'm something. Up for it. I will tell you something. No pressure, but in the old days. mentioned this but I have I'm going to sing a song to test Kate's and you the listeners Canadian knowledge I don't think if any of you know this song you should probably tell me because we are meant to be great friends um, but if you don't even have to know the song but you have to know where it comes from do you think you can manage that okay okay so there's when I do this you have to there's two things you have to Imagine, well, there's one thing you have to imagine, and oh, and I've taken the French bit out just oh, for oh, there's a French bit, there's a French bit. Oh, I've taken shit. that, I've taken okay. it out for two reasons one, I can't do it, and yeah. two, it's, it's it's long enough as it is, okay, okay. Um, but there's one part where I sing, No one wants to die, and when that happens, you have to, you and the listener have to imagine me dancing on a person's grave. Oh, wow, because then you then the next bit makes fun. I like this bit, okay, All right, you ready, yeah. Terriers are my very favorite breed. Do you know it yet? Do you know it? No. They're cute and cuddly, easy dogs to feed. They will bring you up whenever you are down. Terriers average 20 pounds. When I walk around in this terrier town, the one thing that makes me down is when people put bandanas on their dogs. Terriers are my very favorite breed. Cute and cuddly, easy dogs to feed. Terriers were there in the 11th century. <laughs> Napoleon had one to prevent misery. <laughs> Terriers are good with the aged. <laughs> it is the funniest song that's ever been written. Is this an actual of course song? It's, yes, of course it's, it's comedy. Because it's great. Yeah. But it yeah, is an actual song. Yeah. You don't, you've never heard this before. No. Oh, I've lost all my respect. Terriers are good with the aged. Studies show that they prolong old people's lives. No one wants to die. This is the graveyard dancing bit. Like this guy died. Die, 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 <laughs> die, 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 die. Worms eating your eyes. <laughs> uh, give terriers a chance. Yeah, do the terrier dance. Uh, no, let's not. But if you want your love to show, and you want your love to grow, then go Terry, go Terry, go Terry, errs. <laughs> there you go. Holy crap, Rob It's pretty Comfort. long. I'm, I'm going to have to edit that down. I mean, I, I, I don't really know what to say at this juncture, except that I didn't expect the podcast to start that way. Yeah. Um, it might not. You know, it might not, but I, I think it would be good if it did, because yeah. I I don't think any of our listeners were expecting to hear a song of that caliber <laughs> on the subject of Terriers. It's basically the Maybe greatest song. Maybe ever in their life, mm, right? It's the greatest song that's ever been written. So is that from SCTV? Oh, you're so close. I See, I'm almost Canadian. Almost. That's very almost, close. Almost, mm-hmm. but good guess, right? Mm-hmm. Much better than SCTV. I might leave the answer out and just make people Google it. 
just yeah. because it would give me much pleasure that people will try we have to rewind that back and type out a, a lyric of what I've just read. Wow. Sung. That's, I go. feel like invigorated and, it's good, and awake it? and, and yeah, <laughs> you know, excited about Terriers. Well, there you go. What um, have you been doing today? I know what you've been doing today. Well, today I was meeting all of my new students. Yep. It's induction week, yep. as we call it, or yeah. freshers week, yeah. as they call it somewhere else. We call it. I think we call it freshers week. I think everyone calls it fresh and freshers week, except for me, because it says induction sheet on my schedule. Because they can't put freshers week on like the official stuff. It just would no. be weird. Um, so yeah, I've been doing that. Um, yeah, that's that's all I've been doing. That's... And I made some guacamole after that. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good guacamole, I yeah, tell oh, you. Yeah. It was one of those where the guacamole was so good, I almost just wanted to eat the entire bowl right there. Wow. Yeah. Red onion? Didn't use any red onion. Mm. I used garlic and green onion scallions. Oh. Um. Yep, that's right. But mm. it was mighty fine guacamole. So, that's good. Yeah, that's that's all I got for you, man. Okay, that's fine. Sorry. I suppose we should also say that um, we are recording from Kate's house this time. If you were listening last time, we were at my house, and now we're at Kate's house. So two firsts. I know, and I don't even have an accordion for us to mess with. I was going, that was my next question. There better be some sort of musical instrument that you have to play. I sung a song. I sung a fucking song. And... I played the accordion last time. You totally did. I Are nailed you... that accordion. Yep. Yeah. And you know, I would really love to offer a musical instrument. I could get my daughter's French horn, or sorry, a tenor horn out, but... They're trying to sleep. Yeah, they're trying to sleep and yeah, I can't play the tenor horn. Is that backgammon underneath your... It is backgammon. Maybe yeah. you could open and close the backgammon thing like... Rhythmically. Sort of yeah. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound I don't so know. It's probably not a good idea. Do you play backgammon? No. No. It's fun. No, there's okay. There's two games in this world that I've tried to play twice. Backgammon is one because it's such a beautiful. It's a beautiful, game. beautiful game. Like you just look at it, it's like a velvet cloth and triangles, and you're moving stuff around. It looks strategic. Don't get it. And the other one is crib. Oh, cribbage! Yeah, yeah. my dad plays that. My yeah, dad's see, really my, into it. Yeah, my mom too. He plays in tournaments down at the VFW. Do you know what the VFW? Is? I'm assuming because it's American. It's V is veterans. Like veterans of foreign yeah. wars, like. They have like these outposts in every town. There. Your dad was in a foreign war. He wasn't, but that's just where they have the cribbage tournament. So he's a poser then. He's 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 old, is what he is, Rob. <laughs> um, and he plays cribbage because he doesn't have to work. So yeah, mm. that's how it goes. I've never played it, um, but yeah, we have. We also have Uno and magnetic chess. See, that's more my some, my yeah, speed. Uno. Dominoes. Any game that doesn't involve math, like crib, you need to know. You need to add things up in your head quite a lot. It's all yeah. numbers. Yeah, no, I wouldn't find that enjoyable. No, and it's yeah. all and it's not even easy numbers, like fifteens. Oh, God. I don't yeah. know why I know that much. Yeah. That's... My mother was desperate for me to play because she loved it so much. Wow. And you know, using their her children for entertainment purposes. Yeah, I just mostly with most games I find that actually I lose interest fairly quickly and would mostly just rather be talking to people and or drinking. Yeah. Um, in a relaxed manner. I have a really limited span of attention for like like adult gatherings where you play games. So do I. It just really annoys me yeah. usually. And I get like more and more annoyed the longer it goes on. Yeah. You know, yeah. The worst one's Monopoly. Oh. I mean, I like game. Monopoly, but you, we tried to play the game. Have you ever played the game of life? 
Oh, that is weak. That is the one of the worst board games I've ever played. Um, I tried to play it this summer. With I think, yeah, it was awful. Do you know what? I think we are like the only generation of people that don't like board games because our parents love them and the kids now love them yeah, as well. Yeah, they do. They do. I don't know what it is. I mean, I loved them when I was a kid, so I think it's just more that I've become miserable. Yeah. I think. Are you really. a Gen Xer? What, yeah. How old are you? Oh, are you kidding me? Are yeah. we the same age? How old are you? No, you're older than me, aren't you? I'm older than you, but I'm still a Gen Xer. Yeah, we're in fact, all... I'm more of a Gen Xer. Yeah, we're on the ass end of the Gen yeah. X. Yeah, that's right. That's why we hate everything and everyone. Yeah, we're destined to do that. Yeah, because we're yeah. in the middle. We're in between the two generations that have it all. Yep. We're... Ooh, actually, I shouldn't say that. Millennials wouldn't agree with that. Yeah. They don't have anything. They're never going to be able to buy a house. Ever. No, that's true. So come on. Okay, I'll give them that. Yeah. Fine. Damn. Speaking of millennials, I'm getting into these videos on YouTube, these reaction videos. Have you ever seen these? No. Basically, it's these kids, um, like black hip-hop kids, who are forcing themselves to listen to metal. And kind of, and they like to play like old, sh- old metal songs or whatever. And then they just basically give their reaction to it because they get loads of requests. Basically, there's been loads of them that said, oh, I'm going to listen to the new songs. And they've just kind of been taken over by these metalheads saying... Well, why don't you try Led Zeppelin? <laughs> and then, of course, then they do. And they're like, holy shit, I actually like this. Wow. So it's it's basically, it's, I'm watching people, kids, listen to music. That's what my life is. Do become. they have like, uh, you know, like the reverse where they have like young kids being like, yeah, this young Jeezy song, you've got to listen to this. Young, like, yeah. You know, old metalhead dude. Um, no. No. Because no. nobody wants to see some old guy on a video, do they? Going, yeah, this is all right. No, because they wouldn't. They're not <laughs> as flexible. They're not as open-minded. They're definitely not as flexible. No. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, what is this shit? That'd just be a hundred videos of that. Yeah, no. Whereas totally these, but it's great because it's it's really nice because they'll listen to like uh, Ride the Lightning by Metallica for the first time. And I, when you watch them listen to it, it's like you're listening to it for the first time again. It's brilliant. That's cool. And they stop and they go, whoa. Like it just blows their minds. Well, cool, cool. Yeah. That sounds good. Well, I would like to uh, check that. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's some, it's, it's getting a bit ridiculous now because there's some that are just doing it and then like false emotion. Oh, Pretending really? they like it just because they get more likes. Weird. But the good one is uh, two guys from Las Vegas. And uh, what's that? What the hell is their channel called? Lost in Vegas or something. Okay. I'll send it to you. It's brilliant. Um, okay. Uh... Your house is in Ramsbottom, which is a weird place. What's so weird about Ramsbottom? It's in North Manchester, isn't it? It is. What's so weird about North Manchester? Well, I'm from South Manchester. I live in South Manchester. Yeah. Well, I prefer North Manchester. Thank you very That's much. It's weird. I don't it's know. It's the should... cool part of Manchester. It's, it certainly is not. If there's one thing it's not, it's cool. <laughs> Ooh. Fighting words. Do you know what's funny about Ramsbottom? Have, have I told you this? What? If my grandparents had swapped names like whenever i think cutforth is a crap surname and it is but if whenever i think it's annoying because i got so much shit in school and i think if my grandfather and my grandmother swapped surnames my last name would be reams bottom <laughs> sorry yeah um that's the, like reams but like <laughs> ream is bad enough that's not good. I sent yeah. something to a, an agent today called Reamer, and I thought, haha, that's funny. It's like, that's still not as bad as Reams Bottom. <laughs> no, Reams no. Bottom. That's pretty bad. 
Um, yeah. But, you know, cut forth, I, I don't know. I mean, what's, it's not really mockable, you know? It's, it is. I mean, I'm sure anything's mockable, yeah. but, like, I, I don't find it to be, like, that It's funny. very harsh, and no one gets... Cut forth. It's, it's really, not, it's not a common name. It's very, very English. It's, it is very English, actually. Yeah. Um, we have, I should say, we, the last podcast we did featured Kevin Duffy, and I've already told Kate this, but we had our podcast last time, and had a discussion about independent publishing, and had differing opinions about us. I, I guess we should if you just go listen to the podcast and then you'll, yep. you'll hear the different opinions. But anyway, Kevin Duffy has responded to uh, <laughs> something that Kate has said, and I thought I would actually read her the letter because it's it's funny and it makes some good points. Um, I think your point was, and we don't need to dwell on this because we talked about it last time, but I think. Kevin definitely deserves to have a, a response, respond to something that we say when he's not in the room, I suppose. That's right, because we're listening, guys. Yeah. We're listening. Yep. Yeah, and we used to have a rule where we're nice to the guests, but I guess that's gone out the window. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't aware of that rule. I think you made the rule. Oh, did I make that mm-hmm. rule? Um, yeah. Maybe it's only when the guest and, is a lady. And you know, I don't feel that I was not nice to Kevin, no, but I just took issue with his idea about... Um, paying finder's fees to independent publishers right um and i think you were you didn't have a problem i think the biggest bigger problem he had is that you had no problem with independent publishers being used as the r&d i didn't have it's not that i had no problem with it i just accept that that's how it is right okay so here's the letter rob many thanks for the podcast really appreciate it i would love to have a discussion with kate on the why we shouldn't change the ecosystem of the publishing world is she a Buddhist or an agent? If we don't try and change it, then literary fiction is dead as there is no money in for agents or publishers in doing all the heavy lifting. There has to be some economic recompense for all the work indie presses are doing because the market is flawed and biased to those with most money, and that is never good when it comes to the arts. Toodlemoose. Kevin. Wow. I like it. I think I, 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 like, I like him even I more. I like him a lot, and I think that is a very funny and you know, valid completely point. valid way yeah. of responding to it. I'd just like to say that I am a Buddhist, yeah. um, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and I totally agree that we should change the publishing ecosystem. I just didn't think that that way that he mooted was the best way to do it. Yeah. So that's all. It's just a, a, a I'm enough. 100% on his side. But I will say that I'm really glad people like Kevin are out there pushing the envelope and trying to think of new ways of changing it. Yeah. Like, whether or not you agree with those ways, we all have to keep trying to think of new ways. And, you know, sometimes radical solutions are required, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah. great. And I think, especially now that, like, when we, I suppose this is a good time to talk about the Northern Lights Writing Conference. Writers Conference. Sorry. Um, where we were, we saw Joanne Harris, and who is the guest of this podcast. That's right. Quite pro- is she your most famous writer? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you quantify she's that. Up there. But she's she's. I mean, you've had Booker Prize winners, mm-hmm. and you know yep. people who are very well known. Um, but you know, I think I don't it, really if we're know. talking sales, I think she's probably the winner. Possibly. Yeah. Anyway, it's especially important 
to make changes now because the ALCS, that's what it is. What does yep. that stand for? The Authors Licensing and um, something certification agency. Actually, I have no idea. Okay, whatever. It's it doesn't li- something to do with licensing. Yeah. They yeah. basically they did it. They is it a survey that they found? They talked about how so, much money authors are making. Yeah, or how basically, now, really. the ALCS are the body that sort of represents authors and advocates for them in the industry. Um, and essentially, they have been doing these surveys of authors and of, of professional writers, um, you know, for the last decade, actually, for longer than that. And what, what has come out, why this is news now, is they've just, their latest survey shows that writers' incomes have dropped by like 40% since uh 2005 i think that was the sort of headline figure and that most writers now well the average the average kind of rate of pay for a writer is significantly worse than minimum wage yeah Um, well it's it's even worse than it used to be when i was in in 2005 i was living in nottingham and i went to a conference then as hosted by a bunch of publishers including angry robot i think it was a nottingham sci-fi publisher Anyway, they said it was 14000 a year, I think, was the average huh. that the authors are making then. And now it's like 11700 yeah. or something like that. Yes, yeah, so it's tumbling massively. So we can all agree that changes need to happen. Also at the Northern Light Writers Conference, Northern Lights Writers Conference. I'm terrible with acronyms. Northern, Northern Lights Writers Conference. Isn't, it's not an acronym. N-L-W-C. Oh, no, it's not an acronym. Anyway, it has to make... An acronym, did you know this? If it doesn't spell a word, it's not an acronym. Okay. It's just an abbreviation. I didn't realize that. But uh, you know what? You could just call it Northern Lights. I could. It might be easier. I will do Just that. a suggestion. I will. Northern Lights. We had a, a person, a fan of the podcast came up to me cold. What? Yep. No way. Yes. She came up to me and said, are you Rob the, from the End of All Things podcast? And I said, yes. And she said she loves it. And she thanked me for doing it. Wow. That was amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Shout out to Ruth, the audiologist. Hey, Ruth. Thank yeah. you. Thanks and for the love. She might even be able to fix my ears. Wouldn't that be good? Wow. Yeah. See? Yeah. I have very bad tinnitus. It's not very good for a podcast guy to have tinnitus, is it? Is that all those heavy metal yep. concerts you used to go to? Yep. Yep. Correct. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I can't even go to gigs anymore. Jeez. Probably a good, better, best for everyone. Um, oh, yeah. Also... And we had a, did the interview with Joanne Harris, and I have a bit of a confession to you. What? We got, you know how we got the photo together? Yeah. The two of us around. I'm going to have to cut you out for the photo on the podcast itself because it's a square, and I can't. <laughs> on the Twitter, sure, it'll be us. Rob, Twitter, sure, it'll be all sure, three sure. of us. Don't. But on the SoundCloud thing, because it's a perfect square, it's going to cut That's you That's totally up. okay. I really don't mind. Yeah. I think you will. You'll be really upset. Yeah, well, you know, I'm masking it really well, aren't I? Yeah, you are. You're very good at masking. You'll see. It'll come out later. It'll just be bubbling up for ages. And then like a year from now, I'll be like, ha, you bastard. Yeah, well, I'm looking at an award of yours if you need some... What? If I need some positive reinforcement? Yeah, some positive reinforcement, yeah. Go for it, To remind you that you won an award of some kind on your... That's right. I don't have a trophy case. I, I have a trophy case that has one trophy in it. And what does that trophy say, Rob? Something about short story winner, slammer. It says, short, short story slam 2014, I believe. No, it just says short, short story slam number two. 
No, so you no, didn't no. win. I did win. What's the number three for then? It was the third one they had. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, fair. there you go. I'm, 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 I'm not sure that's true. I bet you were just third and you're just pretending. You know, I wasn't third. I won. I won the whole thing. Did you? Yeah. What was that's your short right. story about? Um, well, it was a slam, so I had to do three of them. Um, one of them was was about a woman who whose bag was haunted. Um, one was about uh, a a woman who's yeah someone someone was stealing her laughs. You know, they were kind mm. of surreal. Yes, that yeah. sounds like your stuff. Yeah. The other things in the um, writers' conference, Northern Lights writers' conference, when Joanne did her keynotes speech i thought there was quite a few interesting things in that oh yeah it was a great she was a really great speaker yeah very very inspiring but very matter of fact yep about writing and open Um, yeah i thought it was a really good conference and i thought one of the things that was most successful about that day was that we had um some writers working giving people one-on-one advice about the writing and that was really nice and you know and it kind of just adam who i do the real story with um spoke to me after and he said he was one of the people giving giving writers advice about how to get on with their nonfiction writing and I guess he talked to a lot of other people who do other kinds of writing as, to, as well because not that many people probably came wanting to write an essay collection um, <laughs> so and what he said was really just that he spent a lot of time just giving people permission you know to write and yeah. to take their work seriously and to value their work and they were so gratified by that. Yeah. And that's really what, what people, I think, need, you know? Yeah. And I just wish we could do it for ourselves. I don't know, I know why we need to sit with someone and have them say, it's okay, like, you, you can be a writer. You can yeah. do it. Yeah. I um, think Joanne Harris said something of that in her keynote as well, saying that if you, you know, you can, you, call, you can call yourself a writer as soon as you start writing. Yeah. Which, again, I, I don't know if I completely agree with that. Why not? Well, I don't know. I'm not going to dwell on this too much because I think I talked about this with Joanne in the, the interview itself. But it feels to me like the people who people who call themselves writers too soon, it seems pretentious to me. Hmm. And it seems to be, especially if it's like dudes. If you ever have a moment, uh, some free time, and uh, you want to have a beer with someone, have a beer with a guy that runs an indie press. Um, and just talk about the stuff that they're sent <laughs> because it's quite, and not a, not only what they're sent, but largely the attitude of the people sending mm-hmm. as well. And I think once you hear enough of those stories, you think, oh God, I don't want to, I'm not going to call myself a writer until. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's one of those things where, you know, there's a certain kind of person who will immediately just, you know, take it upon themselves to, you know, perform the work of being a serious writer and step yeah. right into that role, yep. you know? And, like, that's not really who I'm speaking to. So Taking like, their own headshots yeah. and stuff before they have Those guys, book. they're fine, yeah. okay? Like, I'm not really worried about them or interested in reading anything they have to, to write, necessarily. But If you um, if they're on Twitter and their picture, they've not published anything, but they've got a fedora on, and then maybe they're chewing on the back of a pen, yeah. I think that's it's not good. Yeah, I just think that... There isn't some secret club of writers that, like, you get asked to join. Why you the could... fuck would you want to join yeah, in the first place? Yeah, I mean, no one has any money, for one thing. Exactly. So, you know, that's... You're buying all the rounds if you're the last one in. Seriously. I mean, at that conference, again, it struck me, too. You know, I've been I've been hosting that conference for six, five or six years now. 
and involved with a lot of other writing conferences like that on the panels or you know reading or whatever and the thing that really always strikes me is all these people want to be writers like all of them Mm -hmm. really really want to be writers because they all feel like they have a story to tell or poems to share the world or you know something like that and I don't really understand I'm kind of just in awe of it I don't really understand why so many people want to do this particularly now when Mm -hmm. it's so impossible to make a living I used to think it was the JK Rowling effect rolling Uh, I used to think it was you know people see that and think what a wonderful story she's a millionaire and she's done all these stories and and like Stephen or Stephen King as well, yeah. and these two big stuff. But everyone knows that that's everyone knows not now that you can't the make case. money. Doing and there's more people, you know, submitting work than ever. It, so it's not the money. It's not the money, and it's yeah. not fame. I think it's just that people feel like they have something to say, and by writing it and, and hopefully publishing it, they'll be seen. You know what I mean? They'll mm-hmm. really be seen and understood in the world. Yeah. The key for me in that sentence is publishing it. Yeah. And I, and it's not the key. That's probably the least important part of the sentence, in your opinion, isn't it? It's not the least important. I mean, in, in the con- we're talking about being seen and mm-hmm. being feeling like someone gets what you're saying. Someone that your life and the, your experience of living your life and transforming that into some kind of art is meaningful to someone besides yourself and therefore becomes almost more meaningful to yourself, you know? So, like, actually, can that be done without sharing it with someone else? Not in the same way, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say that um, just making art on your own, if you don't share it with anyone else, will do all the same things for you. It might do something else, but it's not necessarily going to give you that sense of, you know, kind of solidify your sense of being seen and understood mm-hmm. in that way. And I think that's why th- that crowd, even though I had to preside over that panel where we were basically saying, yeah, you can't ever make a living doing this. And not only can you not make a living doing it, but you can make, you, you can make less of a living doing it now than you ever could before. Yeah. Um, and people were, you know, didn't phase them. it didn't phase them. It didn't, no. it didn't actually, people were inspired by the whole day. You know, yeah. I don't feel like, it it discouraged anyone. Yeah. So, but I would say that people who want to do writing now, you know, have have another way of making money. You know, that's kind of how you do it. Mm-hmm. And that's Joanna's. I think said exactly the same thing. I found her really inspiring, actually. The other thing I need to talk about is, you know, I don't know what it is about the famous writers that we get and green rooms, green rooms with running water. Oh, really? So I I don't know if people who've listened to the John McGregor podcast uh there was a it that one's much worse than this one this one just has a kind of constant stream of water tinkling down in a pipe behind the wall i don't know if someone's having a really long shower because we spoke for about 40 minutes but uh yeah just something to be aware of if you hear that it's not in your house or in your mind it's actually in the interview i don't think anyone else notices these (laughs) these little they notice the john mcgregor one is impossible not to 
Yeah, I, I know it really pisses you off. It does piss me off. But yeah. like, honestly, I really, I'd like to think that people listen to our podcast with that degree of attention. Yeah. But I'm not convinced. I do think it's funny though that the the guests that will probably attract quite a few listeners. It's the ones that's it's the big, big name authors that this always happens happens with. Yeah. You know, I was trying to think of something quirky to say about your house, but you don't have an accordion like I did. You've got a TARDIS. I do have a TARDIS. Are you a Doctor Who dork? I Sorry. hate Doctor Who. That's another thing we disagree on. I mean, look, I grew up with Doctor Who. Why? You're, you're American. I know. I was eccentric, you know? Oh, I don't really know why, Rob. I don't know why. What have you got going on? What have I got going on? Well, um, I'm working on a commission for First Draft mm-hmm. um, that will be happening on the 1st of November mm-hmm. at... The Portico Library. Oh, they move around, don't they? Yeah, they've, they're doing a series of uh, special commissioned events in, in collaboration with uh, museums and cultural institutions. Museums? Yep. Muse- well, the Portico is a museum. Museum. <laughs> museum. <laughs> Look, I'm foreign, okay? Ooh, I can't Americans. pronounce words right. I got my first rejection from an American agent today. Is that right? Yeah, it felt like, I was like, ooh, I felt like a rock and roll star. Yeah, getting He's from Brooklyn, by. New York. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Did he did he give you any useful feedback? No, of course not. No? No, it's a uh-huh. boilerplate. Uh. <laughs> it was really funny because usually they don't he didn't do a, even do a mail merge uh. where he puts my name on it, just like dear author. Dear author. Dear author, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Wow. Hurrah. Isn't that great? Yeah, you know. Makes Fuck it writing. special. Yeah, yeah. I know. So, but no, that's, I'm working on my long project and I'm working on that. I will be working on that. I went to visit their collection and their occult collection. Ooh, very and, good. And, um, cause it's a Halloween-y kind of event. Oh, cool. So I read some really cool old books and a lot of really horrible ones. Let me just say gothic tales, like the whole gothic tradition in, in literature I don't have much time for it. I'll be. I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Gory. I know. Well, the, the writing is just so purple and overblown. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. my god. So yeah, I had to look through a lot of their occult collection. Seems to be gothic. Right. Gothic writing from the 18th century. Great. Yeah. Not. Not my fave. Why? Why but, are we dissing it? We're trying to get people to go to this thing. Well, no, because the people will not be. All the people who are performing, they actually have some really cool performers, like this comedy duo called The Delightful Sausage, who <laughs> I've seen at um, Group Therapy, the, the <laughs> comedy night at Gorilla in Manchester, which oh, yeah. is really good fun. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're doing, they are just completely wacky, and they're performing something. And they've oh, also wow. got like someone, Paul Varjak, who's a really great performer, mm-hmm. does sort of more, more live art, I would say, kind of stuff. Um, I mean, not, it's still writing, you know, and performing, but it, she's more of a performance artist, I would say, almost even than, than a writer, necessarily. So, like, she's going to do something amazing, I'm sure. Mm. Performance and, art scares me. Well, not performance art. It's not going to be, like, someone with, Having like... Having to jump on stage. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It's not like that. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's quite cool and, and, and really interesting. But, like, it's not, like, people wearing black coming out you know like society performing gestures yeah you know like the hammering a nail into their hand yeah no it's society it's not like that um so anyway well that should be quite cool that's it really yeah first draft my one of my favorite nights actually is it yeah 
because it's Aww. fun. Because it's genuinely fun. We'll get Cabaret. you and Kate to come get yourself some tickets because yeah. they're going to sell out. Okay. So. Well, the Halloween one's always their best one anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on Thursday, the 1st of November. Okay. Oh, well, that's after Halloween. Yeah, well, it's the day after Halloween. Ah, uh, all right. It's fine. Isn't it's fine. that Bonfire Night? No, that's the 3rd. 5th. 5th, okay. Oh, yeah, remember, remember, the 5th of November. I know. That's right. The UK. It's weird living in another country, isn't it? <sighs> it really is weird. Do you know what a womble is? Uh... Maybe we should have we should get someone to do as a quiz. Is a womble is it something to do with the Beatles? <laughs> oh no, I'm mixing it up with the Rudels. Sorry. <laughs> well, I don't know what a Rudel is. I think they're like some kind of spoof Beatles band. I get the I get the wombles mixed up with the ones that make that squeaking sound. What what are those ones? They look like them. Wombles I think clean up. Are they Wimbledon? Sort of like, they're from Wimbledon. Are they badgers? I don't know. Or mice? Is it like a children's thing? Yeah. Yeah. Everything's children's things. I in vaguely Britain. know something about this, but I really haven't. Like, I could definitely couldn't pick a womble out of a police lineup. No, you know me what I'm neither. saying? What are those ones that uh, that make that that sound like? I don't know. Moomin? Oh, is that a thing? Well, no, no. I know the Moomins, but the Moomins don't. They're make not any British. Sounds. No, no, no. Pingu. Oh no! You're thinking of the clangers. Clangers. That's yeah, it. the clangers are great. I always yeah. get the clangers and the wombles mixed up. Oh wow! Well, yeah. You know what? I, I I don't think I should have to know this shit because I I don't have any kids and I was never a kid in this country. So you're part of this culture, you know, and I think it's up to you whether you give a fuck about wombles or not, really. Yeah, I've already made that decision, <laughs> and I'm okay with it. <laughs> I'm fine with it. Right on that note, I almost said bombshell just to be really annoying. You're on gonna that get. Note, you're gonna get. We're gonna get hate mail. From Womble people. Like, Fuck Wombles. How could you diss the Wombles on this podcast? Get bent, Wombles. <laughs> Do you know what's funny? I actually support AFC Wimbledon, so I can't say that. Do you? Mm-hmm. How? Oh, that's a long story. Good lord. I have a friend that... There is, there are, uh, I have a friend who's from... Who supports them. And I've, they are a fan-owned team. So they're a bit... It's a bit socialist. And I've been with... I've been watching them through my friend... For before they were when they're outside of the football, do you know the story about it? No, I'll be brief. <laughs> do you see the expression? Yeah, this? no, Rob, but you'll don't. you can relate to this because it's, it's it's this is something that never happens in the UK but happens in America and Canada all the time where they move teams where teams go from one city to another and it devastates the t- uh, place. But well, come on, I, I right. know about the Edmonton Oilers and the, oh, fuck, don't yeah, even. yeah, yeah, the so, Winnipeg Jets, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Don't I can't. Even Quebec Nordiques. I know. I can, I can I know. tell you all of them. Minnesota yeah. North Stars, Hartford Whalers, and they all got put in place. We've bitched about this on this podcast yes, we before, have. and that's weird. So. But the British one, the equivalent is there's a team called uh, MK Dons. I remember Dons. hearing about MK Dons. Yeah, because I thought it was like the weirdest name. It sounds yeah. like some kind of like rave duo or well, something. Well, right? I'll tell you exactly why they have that name. Basically, they used to be Wimbledon FC. Wimbledon FC, I think they have an FA Cup trophy. Um, just this tiny little team, but they had these the crazy gang, they called them. These, these nutty footballers that just kicked the shit out of everybody and won by sheer will and brutality. And um, anyway, so they have this in their trophy cabinet, but the team went broke. Well, they didn't go broke. The owner moved the team from Wimbledon to Milton Keynes. Wow. But kept the name. It used to be the Wimbledons. That's why ah. it's called, Wim- that's why the Dons, Wimbledon. Wimbledons. 
The Dons is a good name, though, actually. Well, yeah, but it's never meant that way. <laughs> but MK Dons <laughs> makes no sense. They've stolen the name, and they tried to steal the history as well. So Wimbledon started their own little shitty team again that's out of the football league, and they got their history back saying this is the team that won the FA Cup, not MK Dons. Yeah, yeah I know, Dwayne. But, um, and uh, I've been watching them since, and now they're in, are they in the first division? They're... Don't ask me, like, you're expecting an answer, because I have literally never heard about them before. Yeah, they're doing well. They had a guy on their team that looked like a linebacker called Beast. Wow. Yep. The end. I think that's enough. I think that's more than enough, Rob. Yeah. I don't yeah. even know how much of that I'm going to cut in. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if anyone turned up today not knowing that they were going to be subjected to... Um, the Terrier song? The A, the Terrier song... Be a potted history of Wimbledon AFC. Yeah. Um, yeah. So much more than they bargained AFC for. Wimbledon. Really. AFC Wimbledon. Get See? it right, Phil. Oh, for Christ's sake. So I'm just saying, we've given them more than they possibly ever could have expected. Right? Is this, is we should a, probably stop now. Is this our weirdest podcast so far? Um, For me, yeah. it's, it's up there. Well, it, and this is what happens when we do it in Ram's Bottom. Look. It goes weird. There's nothing wrong with Ramsbottom, okay? You know, it's it's a great place. I love it here. Great. We'll yeah. end it on that. Yeah. Hooray for Ramsbottom. Yay, hooray. Yes, so that was us. And now this is Joanne Harris. Listen. But first, listen, if you wouldn't mind, if we could talk about the your latest book. Okay. Testament of Loki. Fine, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. How long has it been out? Uh, it was out in spring. In spring. So you've already got a, a, a second book on the way. Well, what I have, I, until very recently, I had two different publishers. I had one for my, my more mainstream literary fiction, if you want to call it that, and another one for my fantasy mm. fiction. Um, I've now actually moved to Orion for both of those things. And so Orion now do my, my mainstream, my chocolat books and, and my crime books. And uh, Golantz do my fantasy books like Testament of Loki, like A Pocket Full of Crows, the ones that have an overt fantasy element. And so Testament came out um, in May, and I have a, a short book or a novella um, called The Blue Salt Road coming out in November, which is part of a sequence of books based on child ballads, which, um, which I've been writing. The last one was A Pocket Full of Crows, which came out last year. Um. This is going to be a stupid question. What is a child ballad? Um, the child ballads, they're an interesting collection of um, English, uh, Irish, Scottish and North American ballads, which were written down in, I think, about the 18th century by a man called Francis Child and his wife, Elizabeth. They are an absolutely glorious collection of, of folk songs and ballads, um, which are more or less unknown outside of the, the folk community, which is a pity because they really are Grimm's fairy tales. They're very interesting, very dark, very bloody, full of stories. And apart from a little handful of them that have been kind of used by folk bands, people like Steel Ice Pan and Fairport Convention have, have used versions of them, they are otherwise pretty much unknown, and particularly in the literary community. And so I thought it might be quite interesting to to take some of the ones I liked and to to kind of make them into something more or less novel length or short novel length. And so Pocketful of Crows is, uh, is taken from a ballad called The Brown Girl, mm. which is a story of love and revenge. A lot right. of them are stories of love and revenge. But what you have is this interesting spread of 
folk songs dating right back from, you know, as early as the 14th century and earlier. Um, and, and you have variants. So you have Scottish variants and North American variants. And you can see how the lyrics have evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find them very, very interesting. And, and there, are, there are all kinds of things that a, a writer can, can use in there and can, can shape into, into something else. Mm. So my new one, The Blue Salt Road, is, is, uh, is a Selkie story. So very obviously a, a Scottish yep. story. And, and I've really enjoyed that. And so I'm hoping that my publisher will, uh, will encourage me to do some more because I really like the, the format and I really like the idea of exploring something which is reasonably new to, to the literary scene and, and which is also indigenous to us because I've enjoyed writing about Norse myths enormously and I'll do that too. But uh, we have an awful lot of, of fairly unexplored folkloric territory here that, that I think mm. it would be quite nice to look at more. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, the Norse myths that you're writing about now, I suppose... You're into folklore, clearly. Oh, very much. What so, is it yes. about Norse myths? Well, I think partly appeal. because I'm from Yorkshire, mm-hmm. um, they are very familiar. I think you know it's we're very much on the the Viking flight path here, and and so there's a great deal in the in the language, in the slang, in the place names, in in, in all sorts of things that remind us that the that, that there was an Icelandic and Scandinavian presence here, um, and so the stories feel quite familiar. I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Also, because you've got a very, very great cast of characters to play with. Yeah. And you've got a relatively limited amount of source material to go from. And if you compare this to Greek legends and Roman legends, what you've got is a, a really very, very slim volume of, of uh, folklore from an oral tradition which was written down sometime after the Christianization of Scandinavia, and so it's incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um, for any writer, incomplete stuff is a boon because you yep. can make make things up, you can fill in the gaps, which is what I've been doing. I haven't really been retelling Norse myths as much as kind of playing with <laughs> yeah, them and to say the, least. Yeah. the characters and, and expanding because these these characters just deserve to be expanded and yeah. taken taken into a, a different generation. It's interesting how you've done the... Uh, I've only read the, the most recent one in the Runemarks series. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's really interesting how you... I don't know how much I want. I can say without giving away <laughs> too much of the book, but how the the way that they enter the real world, mm-hmm. basically, I think is. I think we can say video games, can't we? Absolutely, I think we yeah. can still say that. But yeah, I mean, I wanted to rather than take everything back into some sort of slightly phony medieval Tolkieny kind of fantasy time. I wanted to try to to explore the idea of taking these characters into different worlds, and, and particularly mm-hmm. into our world. Yeah. Because they seem very modern characters to me, or at least potentially very modern characters. It's partly the way they're drawn in, uh, in, in, in the myths, in, in Snorri, who is, who is the man who originally wrote down what was left of the oral tradition, wrote the characters down in a very particular, very colourful way, which I think suggests that the oral tradition was not as grand or as epic or as mythic as mm-hmm. later writers would like us to think. Yep. And what I wanted to do was try and get back to the, 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 the guts of these stories and their rudeness and their naughtiness and, mm-hmm. and their kind of visceral nature and the fact that these characters are very recognisably human characters, even though they're gods. You know, they're, they're, they're gods who make awful life choices and fall in love with the wrong people and, and <laughs> lose limbs and play awful cruel tricks on each other and tell mm-hmm. dirty jokes and all the rest yeah. of it. And, and and therefore, they're, they're very relatable. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that jumps out 
uh, an example of that in your current book is uh, Thor's armor, how he would have laughed if he'd seen, you know, seen Iron Man, how shiny. Yes, I wanted to do that. I mm-hmm. wanted Thor and Loki to see themselves um, as, as comic books see them mm-hmm. and to be horrified. Yeah, um, and that's another, I suppose that's another way, reason why it's a, a video game. Yes. Is how, the, how these gods have made their way into the real world. But I also wanted to look at the people. idea, absolutely. Mm. But the idea also of stories and of stories not just being books, not just being the telling of stories, but also being games and pictures and films and, and so many different vehicles for stories and stories being, being what carries a tradition onwards or not. Mm-hmm. And I think in the case of Norse myths, very clearly that the tradition has been carried on in so many different forms, which is a great thing because yeah. if you don't tell these stories, they die. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So it's I, the thing that defines you, and you, you touched on this in the um, talk that you've just made, uh, just done, is the variety of books that you write. You, in your own words, have written to annoy people, basically. <laughs> Why are your fans, do you think, so willing to accept such different books? From you, do you think do they think the Rune Marks people? That's one set of fans, and the Chocolat people. That's another set of fans. Well, it depends. I think um, I think there are different sectors of my readership. I think there are some people who will only read the fantasy books, some will only read the crime books, and some will only read the Chocolat books, and some do clearly read across the board because they tell me about it. And I think that's fine. I think people find what attracts them. But I also think that there are quite a lot of my readers who have tried things like fantasy without having read fantasy before because it was me because they are willing to follow me into different areas of fiction because they're interested in what I'm going to do because they don't know what I'm going to do next and I mean this this is a double-edged sword of course it's it's not always comfortable to not know where somebody is going and I'm aware of this as a reader I'm aware that sometimes I like something to be very predictable but I personally as a writer I don't want to be very predictable Mm. I I get bored easily um And I like to experiment. And I think that with me, there's clearly an element of risk in everything that I do. I think in some ways there has to be an element of risk. Otherwise, I don't really want to do it. And so everything that I do is based on trying something that I haven't quite done in the same way before. Do you... um... (laughs) I was just going to say, do you know Neil Gaiman, basically? I do indeed. (laughs) Because he's going to... Fairly similar route recently as well. We're, we're quite similar, I think, in a lot of ways, he and I. We've, we started off in completely different areas. Mm-hmm. He started off with comics and in the fantasy world um, and has found his way towards literary fiction. I started in literary fiction and I have found my way into scripts, games and comics. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, we're very similar in the way that we, we kind of see the idea of stories and, and how they, they operate. And I think because we're, we're of quite similar ages and, and the things that we liked as children are more or less the same things. I, th- I think, you know, we've got a fair bit in common. And every time mm-hmm. we meet up, we find that we have, we have even more in common. <laughs> <laughs> well, Norse myths, I mean, that's quite a... Norse myths too, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, quite a, uh, a very, not limited, niche. Uh... Well, it was at a certain time. It was when Neil and I were, were younger, but it's now, it's now having a bit of a moment, which is rather mm. wonderful. Do you think it's because of you two? No, I don't think so. I think you, these, things, these things have waves. Um, and and Norsemiths particularly have, have waves of resurgence. But no, I don't think either of us has invented 
uh, <laughs> Norsemith-related fiction. There's been a lot of it about. Mm. But I think, you know, every, every few years it comes back into vogue. I think Marvel has helped it enormously. Um, uh, I remember when, uh, when I wrote Rune Marks, the first uh, Thor movie wasn't out. It was, I think, four years before the first Thor movie came out. And Rune Marks got optioned for the movies and then my agent said oh well that'll never get made because they're making this movie called Thor um, and it was the first I'd heard of, of the Marvel Thor. Now Neil was weaned on Marvel and um, but I wasn't allowed to read comics as a child and so I came to hmm. comics very late. Um, I became interested in comics just a few years ago and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of comics but I, I wasn't it wasn't part of my my childhood. Mm-hmm. And so we, again, we we found these 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 stories in different places and came to more or less the same place. Nevertheless, it's very interesting. Do you think you would like comics so much now if you had been allowed them? Because you weren't allowed them, you you have more of an appreciation for them now. Is that um, giving your your mother too much credit? It's a tricky question. I mm. don't know. Um, I used to, the, the sort of comics I was able to read as a child were always comics I stole from the, the local dump, and, <laughs> and they were not the kind of, uh, the, the kind of comics that I would read now. Viz. Um, no, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> things like the Beano, yeah. Beano and the Dandy and, and this kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, so not the, kind of, not the same kind of comics. It took me a long time to understand that graphic novels were a thing and that comics were not all comic. And I've been understanding of the past 10 years or so how versatile the genre is and how you can get away with doing so much more in a comic or a graphic novel than you would be allowed to do in in a, a novel um, which is one of the reasons I'm just absolutely desperate now to write a, write a graphic novel mm. um, and I probably will at some point because the more I think about it the more I meet illustrators and authors of graphic novels and I know by, by experience that if if I talk to enough people and express my interest eventually some some project will come along and I'll do it I mean I, I did this with musical theatre mm. on, on Twitter because most of my contacts most of my professional contacts come from Twitter and having banged on about musical theatre a lot and banged on about pre-Raphaelite art a lot I ended up writing a musical with Howard Goodall about pre-Raphaelite women <laughs> um, this, this is what happens on yeah. social media if you use it as actual social media rather than as, as promotion mm. So do you think that, um, it's interesting, it's really nice, I, I love it when I hear people who have written, you know, what might be called literary fiction, who aren't, you know, sniffy about kind of, you know, comic books and genre things. Do you, do you actually see a difference between literary fiction and genre fiction? Is, do you think there is a clearly defined... No, I don't I know, think And I is. know you've probably had this question a hundred times before. I, it, it's, it's an interesting point, because I think some people feel there is a very distinct line, and I don't believe there is. I think literary fiction is almost an illusion. I think that when something is well written, the literary world tends to claim it as literary fiction and tends to sneer at the idea that it might fall into a genre. Um, I don't think this is true at all. I think it's very clear that a great deal of literary fiction is genre fiction. And there is some genre-free fiction, which claims to be the only literary fiction, but you know, you look at the mm-hmm. book, a long list, it's got a graphic novel on it, for yeah. heaven's sake. Well, early and 20s, a good thing, yeah. too. It's high time it did, because you know, it, it's high time people understood that the method of delivery does not necessarily preclude the thing being literary and having literary themes. But I think the whole distinction between literary and genres is a very movable algorithm, mm-hmm. and, and it's very easy for the literary world to... Um, 
to co-opt something, which is fantasy or crime, just because it quite likes to play in the sandbox. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the literary people would say it's about if if it's concentrating on story, that's when it's genre. If story above all, and yeah, you know well, all those things, I've never I've never been able to, no, to make it. I'm not I'm not sure that defining literary as plot free is the way to go. No, I don't think I mean, so. In my either. view, plot is the engine that drives the car. Who the mm-hmm. hell wants a car with no engine? Yeah, it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know, I think well, plot is yep. is an essential element of the novel. Otherwise, it's not quite a novel. It's something else. And there's, there's, there is an argument to say that sometimes you can read something that has no proper plot simply for the experience of reading it and for the beauty of the phrase. And this is fine for a very small percentage of readers. But it's an indulgence. Um, for by the, it's an indulgence by the author, yes. for the author, not for the reader. It's an indulgence for the author, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, if, if, if that's what you're going to write, then fine, nobody, nobody is there to tell you that you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But to tell people that they are not being literary because they enjoy a story, uh, no, not really. Mm. That's definitely not, not the way I think that, that literature should work. And I think that the, the number of literary novelists now weeping at their declining sales may just have something to do with the fact that 20 years ago they were saying that only five people in the world could understand their book. If you say this enough times to a readership, they'll believe you and you'll only have five readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also I want to pick up on a couple of things that you, you spoke about in your talk. It's funny, you, you say that if you write something, you're a writer. And I have to say that I kind of struggle calling myself a writer. Um, and I think... So do I. <laughs> yeah. But I think a lot of people who, just as a counter-argument to that, is I think a lot of people who do call themselves writers uh, before they've kind of, you know, done anything of, not of note, but, you know, been published at least a little bit. I have a, I, you, Kate and I, uh, who's the other person on this podcast, we talk about this all the time. She's like, she's with you. She thinks that if you write something, you're a writer. End of discussion. Whereas I kind of think, you know, the people who say I'm a writer before they've written too much are a problem. I can see how that might be a problem Mm. with a certain kind of individual. But I think also being a writer is, it's not a binary. You are, it's not like you're either a writer or you're not a writer. There's a whole spectrum of what makes a writer. There are professional writers. There are published writers. There are writers who, who write for pleasure. There are writers of fan fiction. Um, there are also people who would like to call themselves writers and do as little writing as possible. Um, but they are all writers in mm-hmm. their way. But it's, it's, it's important, I think, if you are going to say that you're a writer, to, to sort of be able to define what makes you a writer. Because that's question number two. It took me a long time to say to people that I was a writer. Uh, when I was still teaching, even though I had had two books published, three books, I still called myself a teacher. <laughs> for some time. And even after I'd given up teaching, I found it quite difficult to say, I am now a writer, even though I was, and it was my only job. Um, I mean, I think that there <laughs> That's is, fascinating, really. I think that there is a certain amount of, of, uh, of imposter syndrome in a lot of writers. And partly it's because even when you're doing the job, it's hard to see it as a real job. Yeah. And you have to understand that, yes, it is. It's not the same as other real jobs, but it is a real job. Yeah. Um, if you're not doing it as a job, 
then I don't think that there is any harm at all in saying that you are an amateur. Yeah. Uh, amateur is not a negative. Quite the contrary. Um, amateur implies that you do something out of love and passion. And there is absolutely no harm in saying that you're an amateur. I, I wrote an essay on this, which is still there on my blog, um, explaining why we should try to reclaim this term, rather than try to say emerging or aspiring or any of these other slightly weaselly terms that mm. people use. Yeah. Um, there is nothing wrong with being a gentleman player. Yeah. I tell people I'm a failed writer. <laughs> <laughs> Failure is fine. Yes. yes. Failure and is necessary. That was probably my favorite part of your talk just now, where not only did you say failure is a part of it, but you're a big fan of failure. That's what I'm a saying. big fan of failure. I think the road to success is signposted by many, many failures. Mm -hmm. And if you don't see any of those failures, then you're not on the road to success. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily the road to success. Sometimes it's the road to failure. But at least if you fail, you know you tried to do something. It may not have worked, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that it's not going to work next time or that you shouldn't have done it. You know, I've made masses of mistakes and I've done all sorts of things that didn't work out and I don't regret any of them because I think that these are things that not only build you as an author, but they also make you emotionally resilient and it's actually really important. I mean, th there is a certain level of, of talent that you need to write and a lot of practice and a lot of luck, but you also need a great deal of emotional resilience. And if you haven't had criticism or failure then the first time you get rubbished in The Guardian or something, you're going to go to bed. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> yeah. I think anybody who's kind of written anything and sent anything off knows failure. Um, Absolutely. Because uh, I'm kind of in that place right now where I, you know, I've finished a, a novel and, and it's been, you know, uh, it's been workshopped and... You know, I, I send it out to agents and they say things like, this is brilliant, can I see the whole thing? And then you send them the whole thing and they say, it's great, we love the writing, but we can't sell it. Um, and uh, how do you, what do you do when you get that sort of reaction from agent? How do you get, how do you get past the, oh, it's good, but we can't do anything with it? Well, I had this all the time, you see, when I, when I wrote Chocolat. I had this all the time. People loved it. I had a pile of rave rejection letters. Um, I think the thing is to understand that whatever you write is not wasted. Nothing you write is ever wasted. It may not be picked up straight away, but it may get its time ten years down the line. Or you may recycle it. Or you may take even one idea out of it and make it into something else. But all of this stuff that you're writing, none of it is going to be wasted. Because it's, it's like, you know, like you're training for a marathon. All the time you spend not running the marathon is going to be useful when you actually run the marathon. Mm -hmm. And so all these things are part of your, your training as a writer. And so the idea that unpublished manuscripts are some sign of failure, no, not at all. It, mm. It's basically you've put the work in. Mm -hmm. And none of that stuff is dead forever. I find that, it, certainly in my experience, nothing that I have written has stayed dead forever. And mm. some things have been pulled apart and rewritten, and some mm -hmm. things have just been cherry-picked um, and some things have actually, you know, come out five, ten years after they were written with a bit of a rewrite because it was the time for that story. Mm. So obviously, publishers like, like things to come in waves. If you are slightly ahead of your wave or slightly behind it or between waves, they go, well, we're not publishing this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden when they are, you've got your moment. So right. 
I wouldn't be discouraged by any of that. Yeah. The other thing that you were talking about, speaking of agents, uh, was your experience in finding an agent. Um, you said he was quite a, a dodgy fella. Well, he was not a well-known agent. He wasn't even a full-time agent. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure how many other actual clients he had. Not very many, but he was the agent who took me on, and I was very happy that he did. Um, then I, I went to another agent who was slightly bigger, but who was another sole practitioner. Um, he retired and moved to Spain, and I am now with another agent who is part of a an agency. Um, I think agents, um, they're very much a matter of personal choice. I, I, I liked to have a personal relationship with my agent at first because I didn't know anything at all about the business. And it was important to me to have at least you know one person who kept me in touch with what was going on and who would be there at the end of the phone if I needed something. Now it's slightly different. I don't talk to my agent as often and I don't need to. Um, but it's important to have one, I think, because I know so many authors who have tried to go it alone. Mm -hmm. For a start, it's very, very difficult to talk to a publisher without the intermediary of an agent because too many people want to get in touch with publishers and there has, mm -hmm. to, have, there has to be some gatekeeper there. And so the agent, in the first instance, is the gatekeeper. If the agent believes in your work, then there is something there that the publisher may want to look at. Mm -hmm. That's important. I think people wanting to submit work don't realise how many other people also want to submit work. Um, but it's also important from the legal perspective. There's so many, so many pitfalls mm -hmm. that, that you can stumble into as a writer. Um, some contracts are so labyrinthine. Film contracts are absolutely impossible to understand mm -hmm. without having somebody who is a proper legal specialist. Not even all agents are great with film contracts. Yeah. I mean, my, my first agent made a terrible, terrible mistake with the, uh, the, uh, the, the contract for Chocolat and left a loophole, <laughs> which means that Harvey Weinstein still claims ownership of my stage rights and I'm not in a position to combat him in court, uh, which is a pity because I get requests for these stage rights every single week and I have to say I don't own them. I don't understand what you mean. On stage rights, what are those? Well, the right to develop Chocolat as a stage production. Or a really? musical. Really? Uh, yeah. So basically, um, you know, there is a loophole in that, uh, that contract. And I have to say, in defence of the guy who drew it up, it's got to be 60 pages long. Mm -hmm. um, but there is something in there that allowed Harvey to keep hold of those rights. Gosh. As far as I know, in perpetuity. Wow. Well, yes, this is it. This Even is if he goes to prison? Oh, well, yes. I'm afraid <laughs> if only. so. Oh, man. Yes, he can make, a, he can, he can make a, a, a prison stage play of Chocolat if he wants to, but I'm not allowed <laughs> to sell the rights to anybody. Oh, my goodness. I know, but this, is, this, yeah. is, you know, this happens all the time. But these, these are some of the reasons you need an agent, not only an agent, but an experienced agent and one mm -hmm. with proper legal contacts who can really look at your contracts. I... For an ordinary author to understand every single paragraph of, of a contract is, is just unrealistic, I think. And, and I know too many authors who have been ripped off yeah. in one way or another mm. to believe that, that it's really feasible yeah. to, to, to do well without an agent. You just kind of mentioned before we turned the, the microphone on 
that you are in the midst of writing, not a sequel to Chocolat, but a... I'm, I'm not quite comfortable calling them sequels because to me sequels are directly connected mm-hmm. um, in terms of time. And these have quite large amounts of time between them. And so it's a sort of cycle. Um, it's going to be the 20th anniversary of Chocolat next year. And the new one will come out next year. And so it will be... It's not quite 20 years on in the story, but it's a fair... It's a fair bit of time mm. in the story. And Different so, village, is the same kind of... It's the same village mm-hmm. and some of the same characters. But I've always thought that Vian Rocher had more than one story in her and that her daughters had stories that I might be interested in telling. And so mm-hmm. this is very much a kind of... It's not the end of the cycle exactly, but to me it's, it's, it's the end of something, certainly. Mm-hmm. If uh, the film people came knocking again, would you answer that door? Absolutely. Yeah. I would be... The thing about the film of Chocolat was that it all happened so fast and at a time when things were so new to me mm-hmm. that I didn't really have much opportunity to enjoy it. I was too... I was too busy being stricken with panic over the attention <laughs> that I was getting from the press and the fact that everything was happening so terribly fast and, and I was having these, these crazy panic attacks whereby as soon as I found myself in a a public place and the the flashier the better so film premieres royal palaces you you name it I would just flake out like Tony Soprano mm-hmm. and end up on the floor and I had no <laughs> idea what was happening to me mm-hmm. but you know I, I if that had happened a few years down the line if I'd had the chance for the book being a bestseller to settle and all the, the change in my circumstances to, to, to become something that I could be accustomed to, I would have enjoyed the film much more. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like a lot of things. You, you would enjoy them if, that, if they happened again second time around. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'd be more than happy. But I think the thing about Chocolat is that it became a movie very fast indeed. It doesn't normally happen that way. Usually you have to wait years and years mm-hmm. um, for a movie option to be picked up, if it's picked up at all. Um, with the result that pretty much all my books have been optioned, um, but they've not quite made it to, to the movies yet. They might, they might. And if not, well, you get the option money and then you get the re-option money and at least there is no terrible film there. That's um, right. Not that I dislike Chocolat at all. I loved Chocolat and I mm-hmm. thought it was, a, it, was, it was very, very, very good. And, and, but some, most of the authors I know who have had their books made into films have very mixed feelings, if not quite angry feelings about mm-hmm. it and as such I think I've been very lucky that I actually enjoyed my movie and mm-hmm. um, I did oh good I'm glad yeah it's not quite my book but it doesn't nope. have to be it's, that's that's not what movies are for yeah the one thing I like I mentioned this podcast is about practicalities and it's largely about how writers make money so I usually have one kind of crass money question and um, I suppose for this one I would say how much does a writer get get paid by a like a movie company for the film rights i i hear that it's it's minuscule frankly it depends absolutely on what the book is Mm -hmm. and when it was published um so it can be a tremendous amount of money or it can be a very small amount of money if it's 50 shades of gray or something that you know kind of if the book has already been a bestseller then you can you can ask a remarkable amount of money Mm -hmm. if it hasn't 
then it's usually a very small amount of money. Um, the way mine worked, and, and it's really, this is a, a how long is a piece of string mm-hmm. question, because it really depends where on the success curve you are. Gotcha. I was not on the success curve. When Chocolat was optioned, the book wasn't even out. Hmm. It hadn't been published. Oh. It was a manuscript, um, and it got picked up at the Frankfurt Book Fair. Um and and therefore for minimal minimal money oh. i think i think i can't remember i think it was maybe 10000 hmm. which was very nice for me mm-hmm. i mean i was a teacher still i was uh, you know that was more than i got for a book deal mm-hmm. um but it wasn't it wasn't fortune yeah and i think a lot of people don't understand how how book deals work and and how movie deals work at frankfurt my book had been picked up by transworld and they were trying to sell it to potentially to foreign territories. What happens is that movie people tend to send scouts to book fairs. They look at what is generating attention and they pick up the rights for cheap. It's a bit like buying shares in mm-hmm. a company you don't know whether it's going to do well or expand. And so you buy cheap shares mm-hmm. and then you may or may not make a killing later on. So they bought cheap shares in Chocolat for this, this small option fee. And then, usually written into the contract, there is a later payment that you get if the film is made. Mm-hmm. In most oh, cases, okay. in, in 99 out of 100 cases, the film isn't made and yep. the only money you get is the option fee. If the film is made, then you tend, the author tends to get a certain percentage of the budget. Ah. A minuscule percentage right. of the budget. Like... 0.25% yeah. of the budget. Sure. Sometimes uh, authors will, will want a percentage of the takings, but this is usually a mistake <laughs> because film companies are very, very good at saying, well, we didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. We didn't make any money for this film. So it's much better to take a percentage <laughs> of the budget. You've got your money. It's yeah. there on the table. You can keep it. Um, so that's what happened with me. Right. So I got, I got my, my little payment. And then when they made the movie, I got a bigger payment. And that was... I don't remember quite how much it was, but I think it worked out to to be about four or five years' salary. I was a teacher, Great. so you work it out on a teacher's mm-hmm. salary. So it wasn't a fortune, but it was very yep. nice because it was it was enough to allow me to give up teaching without worrying about money for four or five years. Great. By which time I'd got some, you know, I, I'd, I'd got a kind of relationship with a publisher, and I was mm-hmm. writing books, and and therefore that that was that. But it wasn't like winning the lottery. You still have to pay tax on it mm-hmm. and everything. And and it's not, in most cases, as much as people think it's going to be. Yeah. And, of course, you do not get royalties when the film is shown mm-hmm. or it goes on TV or anything like that. It doesn't happen. That yeah. happens with music, but it doesn't happen with, with films. At what point did the, the Harvey Weinstein contract come into play? Was that at the beginning or at, the, at once it, when it's optioned? Or is that when they decide they're going to make it? Um, Just the, as was, a kind of it was warning. when they decided to make it. Okay, it was, so when it, it, it was actually optioned by by David Brown hmm. and and Kit Golden, and and then it sort of passed on to Miramax later. That wasn't really my my doing. Mm-hmm. That's that tends to be how it works. It gets optioned by um, a producer, mm-hmm. and then there are relationships with other producers, and then they choose directors and they cast the thing, and the whole thing is way out of your hands by then. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. That, I think it's been incredibly informative. Well, uh, one you. last question. When's the new one, the Chocolat book? 
Any, any idea of when that might come out? Oh, The Strawberry Thief, it's coming out next year. Okay. I think in April. Mm-hmm. Um, probably to coincide as closely as possible with, uh, with the 20 year anniversary of Chocolat coming out. So right. I think that came out at Easter. Um, this one should also come out around Easter. Great. Um, thank you very much. That's, that's been incredibly informative. Joanne, My pleasure much. entirely. I've enjoyed it. Um, yeah, so there's some more podcasts coming up. There are, and I actually don't know. Who do we have coming up, Rob? Well, we have Sophie McIntosh, and she is Booker Longlisted with The Water Cure, her book. And she, I spoke to her at uh, the launch of... Oh, Viv. We Were Strangers. Yeah. Richard Hurst. Yeah. Richard I was, Hurst. I talked to her at the launch of Richard Hurst's short story... The compilation isn't the word, is it? Collection. It's an anthology, dude. Anthology. Short stories, man. It's not my bag. An anthology is usually a collection with multiple authors. Okay. Um, collection is usually one author. I like a book that's just one story in it. You know, if one story is all you can handle, Rob. That's right. That's okay. Yeah. You know, everyone has their own capacity. Yeah. Know? Well, I like it. I like a story, and I like it to be a big, long one. Is that right? <laughs> I love a big long one. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so Sophie McIntosh, she's coming on. Um, interviewed her. And then other people as well. Okay, bye. Bye.